Welcome to today's episode of Living in Babylon. Today is June 10th, 2020, and I am your host, Sister Mary Elizabeth, the saint with some sister soldier in her. Today I'm going to be reading an excerpt from the book called Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People by Ben Crump. There's some interesting information here about the history of Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. There was nothing out of the ordinary in Charleston, North Carolina, the evening of Wednesday, June 17, 2015, other than the new visitor who had asked to join the weekly Bible study at the historic Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. There was no reason to suspect that anything was amiss that evening. Although there were 14 attendees, including the five-year-old granddaughter of one of them, the church's senior pastor, who was also a state senator, Clementa C. Pinkney, was presenting along with four other pastors. Their ages, aside from the five-year-old girl, ranged from the early 40s to the 70s and 80s. Pinkney was a dedicated pastor and senator and was, in fact, the youngest African-American legislator in South Carolina history when he was elected back in 1997 at the age of 23. The stranger, a young white man, arrived just past 8 p.m. and asked for the pastor. Some of the attendees, always welcoming to strangers, pointed him out to the newcomer. Pinckney, being a man that he was, invited him over to sit next to him. That was the kind of pastor he was, inviting, caring, kind-hearted, happy to welcome a newcomer into this historic church. Over 200 years old, the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, also known as Mother Emmanuel, has always played an integral part in the lives of African Americans, particularly in the South. It is located in Charleston, a town that was built on wealth from the trade of enslaved Africans and the rice cultivated with their labor. The church is about a stone's throw from the city's historic slave market. The church has shepherded its congregation through the ravages of slavery to the civil rights movement and up to the recently, relatively recent Black Lives Matter movement. It has always been an epicenter for black resistance ever since its establishment in 1816 by African Americans in search of equality and a space to worship freely. The African Methodist Episcopal Church is the first independent black denomination, and this church is the oldest AME church in the southern United States, as well as one of the oldest black congregations south of Baltimore. In addition to one of its co-founders, Denmark Vesey, the church has hosted such historic giants as Booker T. Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., and Wyatt T. Walker who encouraged the congregation to register to vote. The church has had its share of tragedies. 
1818, white officials raided the church and arrested 140 of its members and subjected them to fines and lashes. The crime? Black churches were outlawed before the Civil War. Blacks were not allowed to have their own congregations, forcing them to meet in secret. It was raided again in 1820 and 1821. One of its most historic events, however, involved the former slave Denmark Vesey, the leader of one of the most extensively planned yet thwarted slave revolts in American history. When local whites learned of the planned revolt, they burned the church down and executed 35 men, including Vesey. The church was rebuilt by the congregation following the Civil War, and the current Gothic Revival building was constructed in 1891. Within its bricks and stucco walls is a shrine dedicated to Bessie. About an hour later, as everyone prepared to go home, the young man stood up, reached into his fanny pack, and pulled out a gun and started to shoot. Before fleeing, he stood over a witness and uttered racially inflammatory words. Another witness reported that when one of the victims, Taiwanza Sanders, asked why he did what he did, the shooter replied, I have to. You're raping our women and you're taking over the nation. He then allegedly shot Taiwanza Sanders again, this time killing him. In all, there would only be five survivors. One of them, the five-year-old, who had along with her grandmother played dead. All in all, according to one witness, he loaded up five times. It is no surprise that what would amount to one of the deadliest attacks in a place of worship in the U.S. would happen at this historic seat of black resistance. In a New York Times article, Representative James E. Clyburn reported, Emmanuel AME Church is the rock upon which the AME Church throughout the South is built. He continued, that church has more historic significance to Charleston, that church, than any other church in this community. 193 years later, almost to the day of Vesey's planned revolt, one of America's deadliest terrorist attacks befell this church. One of the murdered victims was senior pastor and state senator Clementa C. Pinckney, a man who, in response to the police shooting in the back of an unarmed Walter Scott on April 4, 2015, helped guide through the state legislature a bill requiring officers to wear body cameras. State Representative James E. Smith, the minority leader and a Democrat who was elected to the state house at the same time as Mr. Pinckney said to the New York Times that Mr. Pinckney was a giant voice for justice in South Carolina. The perpetrator, who we would learn was 21-year-old Dylan Storm Roof, fled the scene in a black Hyundai putting the community in high alert. At 9.05 p.m., the police responded, arriving at the gruesome scene at the church. There was blood everywhere. Eight of the victims were dying, and the ninth would die on the way to the hospital. Advising of an active shooter, multiple people down, a policeman radioed. 
Be advised, it is not completely secure, the warning continued. Apparently, we have someone running around armed downtown, ABC News reported. He's been described as extremely dangerous. The police, on high alert, continued with their warnings. There's a possibility that there's still an active shooter in the area. After a 12-hour, some accounts say 16, manhunt, Roof was captured in Shelby, North Carolina, more than 200 miles from Charleston. It was in the last hour that the police learned who the suspect was. Roof's father called the police to warn them that his son owned a 45 caliber handgun. According to law enforcement sources, a Glock 41 45 caliber handgun was found in his car. Roof had had previous brushes with the law, despite the fact that he had just recently murdered nine innocent people in a church, was carrying at least one gun, and had a rep and had a record. Ruth's arrest was anticlimactic at best. He was stopped at a traffic stop across the state lines in the town of Shelby, pulled over, frisked, and handcuffed. Not only was he taken alive, but his arresting officer took him to Burger King. Apparently, Ruth complained that he was hungry. During the manhunt, which was described as massive by ABC News, Roof was repeatedly described as armed and dangerous. Even the FBI was dispatched to the scene. This is the young man who was taken to Burger King. In a report from the news team, The Young Turks, it was revealed that Roof was shocked the cops didn't apprehend him when he came out of the church. He was ready to die. He had believed that there would be a shootout with the cops, as Young Turks reporter Ambria Allen stated. The fact is that most people who commit mass crimes are either shot or killed by the police, or they commit suicide. The fact that he was actually apprehended, fed, and taken care of despite this obvious hate crime just says a lot about racial narratives and how they operate in terms of policing and who is considered a victim in these particular circumstances. When the circumstances of the police killing of, for example, 20-year-old Tamir Rice, shot by police for wielding a toy gun in November of 2014, are compared with the treatment of Dylan Roof, a vivid picture emerges of two very different Americas at work, one for people of color and one for whites. Sik Ugar of the Young Turks hit the nail on the head when he brought up the Tamir Rice case in the discussion of the Charleston shooting. He said, look, there are a lot of different reasons why that might have happened, that Roof was not immediately apprehended. I don't know all the details of the police reactions at that moment to that crime. Nobody is asking for the police to go shoot people at sight. What we're asking for is the opposite. So when you see a 12-year-old boy like Tamir Rice, don't shoot him in two seconds flat. Maybe he's got a toy gun. Maybe he doesn't mean any harm. Maybe he's a 12-year-old boy in the park. So can we afford everyone some degree of latitude? If we're going to afford it to a terrorist like this guy, can we afford it to 12-year-old boys? 
It all began with a 9-11 call on November 22nd. Hi, how are you? 9-11 operator, good. I'm sitting in the park at West Boulevard by the West Boulevard Rapids train station, and there's this guy in here with a pistol. You know it's probably fake, but he's like pointing it at everybody. 911 operator, and where are you at, sir? Caller, I'm sitting at the park at West Codell, West Boulevard, by the West Boulevard train station. 911 operator, so you're at the rapid station? Caller coughs. Are you at the rapid station? No, I'm sitting across the park. I'm sitting across the street at the park. 911 operator, what is the name of the park? Cadell? Caller, Cadell, yes. The guy keeps pulling it in and out of his pants. It's probably fake, but you know what? It's scaring the SH out of me. 911 operator, what does he look like? Caller, he has on a camo he has a camouflage hat on. Operator, is he black or white? Caller, he has a gray, a gray coat with black sleeves and gray pants. Operator, is he black or white? Caller, I'm sorry. Operator, is he black or white? Caller, I think he's black. Operator, you said a camo jacket and gray pants. Caller, no, he has a camouflage hat. You know what that is? Operator, yes. Caller, his jacket is gray and it's got black sleeves on it. He's sitting on a swing right now. He's pulling it in and out of his pants and pointing it at people. He's probably a juvenile, you know. Hello? Operator, do you know the guy? Caller, no, I do not. I'm getting ready to leave, but you know what? He's right there by the youth center or whatever, and he's pulling it out of his pants. I don't know if it's real or not, you know? Operator, okay, we'll send. Unintelligible. Caller, thank you. We're going to leave off our reading here today, and we will continue with an excerpt on tomorrow with the story of the continuing story about Tamir Rice and Dylan Rue. So thank you for joining me today on this week's episode of Living in Babylon. Until we meet again, stay blessed and stay safe.